This is Carrie. Amy's been feeling puny, so we've got a replay episode for this final full week of February. We're revisiting our episode with St. Clair Dietrich Jules, who we recorded with in Season 5 in 2021. She had just published My Beautiful Black Hair, 101 Natural Hair Stories from the Sisterhood, which features essays by and photos of Black women who have come to understand their hair's important role in their identity. We'll be back next week with a new episode. We hope you enjoy this replay. I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover. We find book lovers everywhere, and talking about books is one of our favorite things to do. Besides spending time planting native species in the yard, which is what I did yesterday. What kind of native species? A sweet spire and uh, like a bunch of native ferns, and I don't even remember. I love a good fern. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of stuff. That's what I did. So, And we may be a little biased in thinking that reading people are the coolest people. Our guest this week is St. Clair Dietrich Jules, a Brown University graduate who's a filmmaker and a new author. Her book, My Beautiful Black Hair, 101 Natural Hair Stories from the Sisterhood, debuts on September 28th and features essays by and photographs of Black women who have come to some deeper understandings about what their hair and how they wear it means to them. We talked to St. Clair about chemical treatments for black hair and how they differ from the treatments white women know, how hair can play a role in mother-daughter relationships, and the important reason she wanted to create this book in the first place. Now, when we recorded this episode, black hair had recently made the news because of the International Swimming Federation's ban on soul caps at the Tokyo Olympics, which are made for black swimmers with natural hair. And so uh, when we recorded, we weren't sure whether the ban would stay in place uh, because the Olympic Committee was reassessing it. But as far as I can tell from reading in the news, it did stay in place. But first, I do want our listeners to know that this week you are going to hear pets in the background. There isn't any getting around it. You will hear St. Clair's cats and a dog of mine who hid under the bed in my recording studio. My recording studio is just a guest bedroom (laughs) who I didn't even know was under the bed until she decided to make her loud entrance. But Carrie, you and I have decided to embrace all these pesky, cute animals. And you can check out our social media or our website to see cute pet pics of our guests' pets. There's that old adage, if you can't beat them, join them. So pets are getting their time in the spotlight. And speaking of pets. Yes, my kids and I have like a little neighborhood pet sitting business. The goal when we started it was a way for my kids to earn some money and learn some responsibility. And so I think this weekend, because it is Labor Day weekend, we are watching like five different neighbors pets. So we've got like a whole schedule of what time the kids need to go feed this dog and walk this dog and feed this cat. And so, yeah, so we've been kind of busy. That's kind of a lot of responsibility to be taking care of all those different animals. I mean. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, it's it's a lot. And, you know, they like doing it. It's kind of a win for us. We just have cats because I'm too lazy for a dog. So they get to be around dogs. Although the funny thing is, one of the dogs that we watched yesterday, like he loves to play ball. And, you know, when dogs pick up a ball in their mouths, the ball gets slobbery. And my kids do not. One of my sons took a pair of gardening gloves over. <laughs> and the second time we went to check on the dog, because he does not want to touch a slobbery. Oh, ball, so. what you need is one of those things called a chuck it. Do you know what a chuck it is? I do know, but we were we were tossing the ball in the house. We didn't, they don't have okay. a fenced in yard. So we can't really... You can't really it, chuck it, it. We can't really chuck it in the house. That would <laughs> okay. That would cost more money than what we're making in uh, pet sittings if we break windows. So uh, yeah, so he just has to deal with slobber or put on a pair of of gloves. So anyway, that's funny. You've been busy this weekend. Well, <laughs> you know, it seems kind of par for the course for us, but it's a holiday weekend, which means things are going to break around our house. So. My oven is no longer working and we're going to have to get a new one. So there's that. And then our air conditioning is not working on the upstairs level of our house. 
Fortunately, it's not been too hot this Labor Day weekend. It's been pretty cool at night. So we've just been able to open the windows. And so that's been a blessing for sure. But I'm going to have to call the air conditioning people on Tuesday. And I'm just crossing my fingers. We don't need a, a new unit. Our house is of the age. We've already replaced most of the major, you know, mechanical items in it, the roof, mm-hmm. the air conditioning, the the hot water heater. We've replaced all those things once, but we're getting to the point we've been in this house long enough that we might have to start replacing them the second time, which to me means it's time to sell the house and we need to move. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. But I wanted to mention something to you, Carrie. There is a show that I started watching that I think you must watch. Okay. It has Steve Martin in it. And I know how you feel about Steve Martin. I do like Steve Martin. Is he playing the banjo? I think that actually at some point in this series, he does play the banjo, though we haven't gotten there yet. But it is a show that stars Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez, and it's called Only Murders in the Building. And I've watched the first three episodes, and I think it's very cute, very entertaining, and I think that you will like it. These three people live in a building in New York City, and a murder happens there. And they try to solve the murder because they are all huge fans of true crime podcasts. And so they want to try to solve it and make their own podcast. But there's some funny things that happen that we actually did in the very beginning when we were trying to, or not. Are they in the closet? Yes. So they are recording in the closet and getting very, very hot. (laughs) (laughs) Which cracked me up. Anyway, like I said, I'm only three episodes in, but considering how you bought a banjo because of Steve Martin, I thought you might want to check it out. Yes, I I will do that. But I'm still trying to get through like seven other shows. So I'm still trying to get through Detectorist. I'm still trying to get through Schitt's Creek. Well, the nice thing about those is they're all like 30 minute episodes. For those who might want to try it, it's on Hulu. So I I would recommend that. I think it's time we talk to St. Clair. Let's do it. St. Clair, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So St. Clair, tell us just a little bit about you. Where do you live? What are you doing with your summer and what's going on? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. and I live in in D.C. now as well. I've been here pretty much my whole life except for when I went away to college. I am an activist, filmmaker, photographer, author. And I'm really interested in using art as a form of social justice. And this summer in particular, I mean, I know that we're sort of coming off the heels of of COVID. So things do look a little bit different, but I've been still trying to find ways to continue my art and use my art as a means of healing for everyone. So I'm curious, because we tend to talk to people who've been writers since they were you know, teenagers and stuff like that. So since you wear a lot of hats, has reading been a big part of your life? It's funny, not really. When I was younger, pretty much up until I went to college, I really didn't read that much at all, which is funny because my mom is an English professor. So part of that might have just been me rebelling and sort of really, (laughs) (laughs) really wanting to go the STEM route. You know, I wanted to study biochemistry that kind of thing. I interned at the NIH. When I got to college, I realized, hey, I actually am kind of like my mom. I really do like reading. I like literature. I'm a very slow reader, but I do enjoy it. And obviously, you know, in college, they just really pack on the reading. (laughs) When I was younger, at least when I was in high school, I sort of had this path that I wanted to take in terms of studying biochemistry or something in science and then becoming a researcher in a lab. And I never imagined that my life would have ended up like this, that I would end up wanting to do filmmaking and photography and writing full time. But I'm really glad that that I ended up here. And I'm just going wherever my heart takes me. <laughs> cool. So much of filmmaking is storytelling, even if it's not presented in the identical same way as a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, but filmmaking is telling a story, which is, I mean, that's what we're getting from reading too. So, so it is connected, even though it, I, I think it may not seem like it. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I was wondering if there was a particular moment in college where you were like, man, I really do not want to do any biochemistry, but I would really like to make a film. Yeah. So 
I pretty much ASAP actually got out of my science phase when I started college. I think partly because, (laughs) (laughs) one, I have really bad test anxiety and so many of the science classes are like, you know, so test heavy. But also there were just a lot of offerings for these really interesting sounding classes like global justice, um, protests in the 60s on college campuses, things like that. Just these titles of classes that really got me interested. And so that's how I sort of got into the humanities and moved away from the sciences. And then my final semester at Brown, I took my first filmmaking class, first and only filmmaking class. And I made a documentary called Documented Through Through That Class. <laughs> can you guys hear the cat? <laughs> we can, but it's totally fun. <laughs> So you said uh, documented? Mm-hmm. Documented, yeah, because it was in 2017, right after Trump initially tried to rescind DACA, the DACA program for undocumented youth. And so I wanted my documentary to contribute to this positive narrative about dreamers. And so that was it? That was the thing that hooked you? Yeah, I loved it. And I I mean, I'd liked filmmaking from before then. For a couple of years, I was sort of into it. I liked watching movies, sort of piecing them apart. But this was really my first time delving into the filmmaking process. And I really like, again, like you were saying, right, the storytelling component of it and just sort of recognizing our shared humanity. And I think that with film and photography and writing, all of those art forms lend themselves really well to sharing pieces of our humanity. So you have a book coming out in September called My Beautiful Black Hair, 101 Natural Hair Stories from the Sisterhood. So how would you describe your book to readers? So I would describe my book as a large-scale visual anthropology. I would say it's a love letter to Black women everywhere and to anyone who has ever felt a lack of confidence in themselves and who they are. That's a lovely description. Thank you. It It made me think of Zora Neale Hurston. Cultural anthropology. That sounds like Zora Neale Hurston. (laughs) (laughs) So the inspiration for your book involves your own experience, but also that of your younger sister, Chloe. So, So tell us a little bit about your experience and how Chloe's experience motivated you. So my last semester of college... I got a phone call from my father who lives in France with my little half siblings. And he told me that one of my little sisters, Chloe, who was only four years old at the time, was being bullied by her majority white classmates at school. And she was really embarrassed about her Afro and she didn't want to go to school because she was so embarrassed. And I had so many emotions running through my mind. I was angry. I was sad. I was upset. I was confused. And I really wanted to do something to show my little sister, hey, okay, I know that you don't see many people who look like you in your everyday life. You don't see them in school. You don't see them in your community, you know, in the south of France. But I can show you here, here are 101 black women and girls with hair just like yours. So I really wanted to give her an example of what it looks like to love yourself and especially to love your natural hair. And You know, it it was actually an emotional process for me, too, because when I heard that my sister was upset about her hair, it brought back all of the times that I used to be upset about my hair, too, because I also went to a majority white elementary school. And for the longest time, I hated my hair. I hated my skin color. I hated my facial features. And I just wanted to look like all of my white classmates. Um, So doing this book, even though it, it started out just for my sister, has also been really healing for me as well. I think most white people don't know much of anything about black hair and the amount of work that goes into styling it with products and chemicals if someone chooses to do that. And reading your book, I think, led both Carrie and I to try to find out more about the differences between black and white hair. And you talk about this in your book, but can you tell our listeners more about what many black people, primarily women, I I would think, have traditionally done to their hair to make it acceptable to Western standards? Yeah. So a lot of Black women, and I would say definitely the majority of women featured in my book, get chemical perms or relaxers, often starting from a young age, sometimes as young as, you know, four or five. And 
I, actually the documentary called Good Hair by Chris Rock. It, it came out a while ago, but it really goes into detail about how damaging these relaxers are. Like they, for one, they're painful. They burn your scalp. Mm. They're extremely unhealthy. They can actually seep under your skin and really actually do damage mm. to to your head. And then obviously, like a lot of times, you know, hair will fall out. And so when black women decide that they want to go natural, for a lot of them, they have to do the big chop because Mm. once hair is permed, it's permanently damaged. Mm. And so it's a really emotional process. I I actually never had a perm, which I'm grateful for because I didn't have to go through the whole big chop process, which is right where you cut off all of your damaged ends that, that were permed. But it is a really emotional process because, I mean, I think just for a lot of a lot of women in general, hair is a big part of our identity. And so to have to sort of chop it off and start over is a big deal. So one of the things, and when I was reading through your book and doing, you know, some of that research on my own. So I remember, you know, like in the 80s, getting my hair permed, but perming for white hair is different than what a perm is for black hair, right? Like perming Mm -hmm. for white hair is chemically making the hair curl. Whereas what I understand, you know, from my limited Googling and looking stuff online, when you refer to a perm on black hair, that's to straighten it. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. exactly. To straighten okay. it. You know, I mean, you had had experience of your own and black girls and women that you knew, but did you learn anything additional about black hair from creating the book that you didn't already know? Yeah, I think, you know, growing up, I didn't realize or it didn't hit me when I was a little kid how many black girls got perms at such a young age and how the perms were oftentimes forced upon them sort of before they had an understanding of of what it meant to have, you know, your hair straightened. And, you know, that's obviously a really painful experience for these little kids to not really have the language to describe how they're feeling, but yet to sort of have this change of identity, right? Like the straightening of the hair, oftentimes in a painful way, if it's with a strong perm or relaxer you know, and not really having the language to analyze that at all. And on the flip side, though, I also learned a bit more about the history of Black hair through the process of working on this book. And so I think that rooting Black hair in a historical context is also really important and recognizing that even though we don't have all of the information about how our ancestors, you know, styled their hair, we can try to continue honoring their legacies and learning different traditions and different hair techniques that we can find, you know, that they used to use. So you refer to some little girls getting their hair permed before they're even know exactly what it is. And a lot of the people that you talk to in your book or you document their story, their mom straightened their hair when they were children. And it made me wonder whether going natural for some black women may feel like a rejection of their moms or an aspect of who they used to be. And hair is much more than hair in that case. Is that something you noticed as you were working on the book and doing the interviews? Definitely. Mothers and daughters, I mean, as you saw, is is an entire section on its own. In the stories that, that I collected, I didn't hear people talk about how they felt like it was a rejection of their mothers per se. But this one woman, she's, you know, her family is from the Dominican Republic And she said that when she first went natural, it felt like a rejection of her family in general and of Mm -hmm. her Dominican identity because hair straightening is so common where she's from. And so deciding to cut her hair short and to wear it curly was a real cultural difference from what most of her community does. And she, she said she sort of had to relearn beauty and she had to reframe her identity in the context of her blackness and recognize, okay, actually I can have short hair. I can have curly hair and I can still be Dominican and I can still be part of this community and this culture. So mm-hmm. I think it's, it's definitely a, a complicated topic. And as you know, I'm sure you saw in the book, one of the women talks about how her mom, she's also Dominican, how her, uh, forcibly placed the relaxing cream on her hair after she mm-hmm. decided she wanted to go natural yeah, I think it's it's definitely a traumatic topic and it and it definitely I think goes beyond just hair. 
Yeah. Your family background is Caribbean. I think on your dad's side, did you see some differences between women who were from different places, American, Caribbean, things like that? Did you see any differences in the their hair stories, I should say? Yeah, I, actually, uh, several of the women are, are Dominican, Caribbean, and they, they do talk about the big hair straightening culture there. It is really interesting, though, how there are common threads between, you know, Black women from all different backgrounds. I, you know, this one woman in the book is from Kenya, and I didn't include this in the book, but I had asked her, you know, oh, when you when you went back home, when you went to visit Kenya, what was it like? What were the hair traditions like? You know, and I was expecting her to talk about the natural hairstyles that they have. And she said, oh, actually, most women there have weaves or wigs, or at least most of the women who she saw. Hmm weaves, wigs, or relaxers. And so I think that these Western European beauty standards are so ingrained across the world at this point that there are differences in Black women's hair stories, you know, across Mm -hmm. the diaspora, but I think that there are more similarities and differences. Mm -hmm. Hair is a big part of a person's self-esteem. I mean, that's just the way it is. But for a lot of Black women, the way they wear their hair is also something that could inf- uh, affect their employment, you know, their economic prospects. And so there's a chapter in your book titled A Brief History of Our Hair Story by Dr. Afia M. Bilishaka. So can you tell our listeners what you learned about that part of the hair struggle for Black women? Yeah. So Dr. Afia, she studies and teaches what she calls psychotherapy. So she uses hair as an entry point to talk about mental health for, well, for anybody, but specifically for Black women and girls. And she talks about how the discrimination against natural hair plays a role in our mental health. And she also, I think, in that section does talk about sort of the employment opportunities, the educational opportunities that some Black women and girls lose because of their hairstyles. And that's a very real struggle that a lot of us face. And I think that that's also why it's important, or I think it's important to be gentle with Black women who haven't gone natural or who don't want to go natural, because there are real reasons not to, you know, there are real consequences sometimes for going natural, you know. So your book also touches on black hair and white spaces, especially in schools and girls being told that their hair doesn't align with the dress codes. And in an interview, you suggested that natural hair in the U.S. can be a form of protest. And so I want you to talk about that a little bit, the connection between hair as protest and school rules. Definitely. In in schools, wearing natural hair depending on the school rules, can be a direct form of protest, whether or not we intend it to be. So a couple of women in the book talk about the discrimination they faced in schools just because they wore their natural hair. One of the women was sent to the principal's office because she wore her hair in an afro that day instead of straightening it with a flat iron in the morning. Again, there are real consequences. And so I think if you're in a space like that where natural hair or Afrocentric hairstyles are literally against the school dress code, then deciding, actually, I am going to wear my natural hair is a form of of protest against those rules. And then on a larger scale, I think that living in a world and specifically in a country with European beauty standards where we're taught that straight hair is the most beautiful hair we can have, I think that deciding to wear our hair naturally is also a form of protest and a form of rejection against these norms that have been placed upon us and that have tried to make us feel less beautiful than we are. You know, when I think about dress codes, sometimes I understand the motivation or the intention. But, you know, I think a lot of times about the idea of distracting, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. sometimes the language that's used, you know, like no hairstyles that are distracting, but that is such a subjective concept. (laughs) You know, I mean, like that just has no meaning because what's distracting to one person is somebody else's like me is totally going to not pay any attention to. So it's, it's hard to find any objectivity sometimes in the dress codes. Um, And the thing with too, like with dress codes, most of the issues been with actual clothes, but with hair, I mean, you feel like that's 
who that who person are. is. That's who they are. You right. know, that's the way their hair grows. Strange to me that that would be part of a dress code. That's interesting. So some of the women talked about being biracial, specifically daughters of white mothers who had no clue how to handle black hair. So is that something that you experienced? And do you think that's getting better if for no other reason than, you know, maybe there's YouTube and white moms who have biracial daughters can look on YouTube or there's social media. You can ask a question. Do you, do you think that that's changing? That's a really interesting question. So I can, so talking from my own experience with a white mother, I think that my mom, I mean, from before I was born, I think before she even met my dad was really into racial justice and learning about anti-blackness and learning how she can use her white privilege to try to help dismantle white supremacy. So I feel really lucky, you know, so I think with that came her desire to understand my hair and she did did do like a good job with my hair. You know, I, I do remember at some point when I maybe got to middle school or something, I realized, oh, I should probably stop using my mom's conditioner because, you know, for straight blonde hair or whatever. And, and it made my hair feel a little weird. So I was like, oh, okay, actually, you know, my hair is curly. So I need to, you know, use something other than what my mom uses. But I think that, you know, for me, I think my mom did a good job. I think that there are some white mothers, though, who don't necessarily do a good job and who also don't necessarily take the time necessary to instill a sense of self-love within their daughters. So one of the women in the book talks about how her mom would make comments about how her hair was messy, how it was unmanageable. And her mom didn't mean to be malicious, but it came off that way, right? Her mm -hmm. daughter interpreted it as her hair not being beautiful. And so I do think that white mothers of biracial children or who adopt, you know, children of color definitely, definitely need to put in the work ahead of time to understanding their children and their hair and how that will affect their experiences. Where did you find the people to interview for your book? And did you find people were excited to be a part of the project or were they hesitant to talk about their hair stories? Yeah, so I reached out to my friends, first and foremost, people who were least likely to reject me. So I reached out to my <laughs> friends. <laughs> and then I reached out to acquaintances. And my mom actually teaches at an HBCU, a historically black college university here in DC. So she recruited some people for me. And then I actually found a lot of people through social media, like through Instagram, because there's a huge natural hair community there. So some of the people actually were complete strangers. And it was, for me, a really beautiful process to see how many Black women were willing to come together and help me help my sister love her natural hair, even though they didn't know me, they didn't know my sister, but I think sort of felt the shared story between most of us Black women in, in terms of our hair. And so people were really excited about being part of the book. People were like, I'm honored. I can't wait to be a part of this. I'm so excited. And and that was a really cool experience. And I think sort of helped reinforce the sense of sisterhood that a lot of us feel as Black women. There is a law that passed in California called the Crown Act, and there's a campaign for it to be passed in other states as well. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that law and how it's related to natural hair. Yeah. So the Crown Act, really important piece of legislation. And it's crazy that it's taken 400 years since Black people have been here to, you know, finally get a law legalizing Black hair. But so the Crown Act basically prohibits discrimination against natural hair and other Afrocentric hairstyles or ethnic-based hairstyles in the workplace, at school, and in public places. And so this is really important because as we were talking about earlier, so many Black men and women face discrimination because of how they wear their hair. And so this is a really important step in the right direction. And I think that the Crown Act definitely isn't the be-all, end-all. There's more that needs to be done. But I think that getting it passed is a great first step. And then we can work on ending the less formal forms of discrimination. So not just okay, you can't get fired for wearing a natural hairstyle, but how do we make sure that natural hair is not just tolerated, but really embraced mm -hmm. across the country? 
So I know it's been passed in California. Has it been passed in some other states as well? Yeah, I believe as of now, it's been passed in 12 states and they're lobbying for it in other states as well, other states and cities. Mm -hmm. But But it was first passed in California in 2019. And so it is sort of taking way longer than it should to make its way across the country. Right. And we've been mainly talking about women in natural hair. I mean, your book focuses on women, but Mm -hmm. do Black men have similar struggles, do you think? I do think so. I think that for Black women, I I do think the struggle is, I don't want to say it's more difficult, but I think it's, there's not really a hairstyle that Black women can wear where they won't be looked at. Whereas Black men, I mean, I feel like any guy can kind of be bald or have really short hair. (laughs) Right. But yeah, definitely. I mean, my my father used to have these really long dreadlocks. And I know my mom was always worried about him when he would go for runs early in the morning. You know, he's a runner and get up at dawn and go running. And my mom was always worried, okay, what does it look like if there's this black man with dreadlocks running at five in the morning? And so definitely, I think that black men, especially when they have dreadlocks or longer afros face similar discrimination. There was the case of that wrestler, the black boy who yes. had his locks uh, forcibly mm. cut off. <laughs> right. And so I, that. I mean it's it's heartbreaking and it's and it's angering. So I think that is an important part of the conversation too to include black uh, black men. Even with the Olympics, it, you know, yeah. with the swim cap that are made for black athletes and their hairstyles and their the Olympic committee was having problems with with the swim caps. I think that If you are a person who doesn't have to experience those kind of issues, you're just not aware of them, you know, but if you pay attention to the news and and you see these things happen all the time. I I know in our school district, this was maybe five years ago, there were a lot of discussions because the policies of of the district were infringing on both male and female and, and natural hair and is that something that really the the district needs to have a say in? I think it's pretty important to talk about. I mean, I saw the disc- a little bit about the discussion about the swim caps, but I think I'm not clear on were they thinking that it, a different swim cap would give a, an unfair advantage or? Yeah, their justification was that the swim caps that, you know, some black folks wanted to wear for swimming, that those swim caps didn't fit the natural shape of the head. <laughs> Which obviously for a lot of black people, you know, if they have bigger hair, if they have locks, braids, whatever. You need a bigger area to put it, right? Yeah. Right. Huh. Okay. St. Clair, you've made award-winning films. So you have used films, as we've talked about, to tell these cinematic stories. So in this book, you're using still photos to sort of tell a story. So talk about the experience of using both kinds of film, the movie film, but also, you know, still film to tell stories. Are there similarities between the two? I really like both film and photography. I like filmmaking because I feel like you can capture reality as closely as possible through technology. And I think that that's a really beautiful thing because again, I think that I'm really interested in telling real human stories. And then with photography though, I think that's also really beautiful because you can capture just a moment in time. And I think that that's really interesting. You know, I feel like with photography, each shot is so important. You know, you really get to focus on the still image. And, you know, one thing that I pay a lot of attention to when I'm photographing is people's eyes. You know, I always zoom in on the eyes and I think that there's so much beauty there. And then in just capturing a still moment of a person, I, I really like that a lot. And, you know, for, for this book that I'm coming out with, I really wanted something physical that my sister and and other people could hold and sort of feel the beauty of black women in their hands instead of just watching it on a screen. I was thinking, looking through the book, that it would be perfect to have in schools, just in a classroom for students that they can just pick it up off the shelf, look at it. You know, it would be something that, that I think students would really appreciate, but get a lot from. Was the process to produce a book different or similar to making a film in in terms of like you as the person who's creating it? When I started making this book, I actually was sort of on the fence about maybe making it into a documentary. And so that's why I initially was recording all of the interviews with these women 
before I decided, okay, I want this primarily to be a book. Is that creative process the same or is it different depending on whether you're doing a film or what you experienced when you made the book? It is different. I mean, for the book, I feel like in a way I kind of had to be more thoughtful because I had to transcribe everything that was written. And so I really got to take more time with people's words and sort of analyze them and figure out what they were saying. And then matching the words on the page with each image and making sure that there was a connection between the two was a really cool process. So do you see a theme in the creative projects that you have done in film and books? And what is your next project? I definitely see a connection. I think that my focus is always, or at least for now, is on the human experience and social justice and recognizing our shared humanity. You know, and I think that we're all more connected than we realize people from across the world, people of different races, different genders, different ages. And so I do want to showcase that in all of my projects. And, you know, after I I screened my film documented at an African-American film festival in Baltimore and this older black woman, African-American came up to me after and said that she really saw immigrants in a new perspective after watching the film. And that was a beautiful moment because that's what I always want to do with my art. I always want to show people that we are more connected and that we have more in common and that all of our experiences are beautiful. My next project, I have sort of a range of ideas that I want to do. I'm really interested in learning more about indigenous cultures from across the United States, but also across the globe. And so I would really like to explore that. And I would also like to explore natural hair and black hair in general from a more global perspective as well. Sort of what you guys were asking about earlier in terms of, you know, how is the black hair experience different across countries? You know, I can only speak really about African-Americans and then black folks who first to second generation immigrants who now live here. But I think it would be interesting to go and see if there are places in the world where the black hair experience does differ significantly. So those are some ideas that I have for my next projects. And those are both cultural anthropology in different ways. So there's maybe another theme in there a little bit that connect your projects. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Well, it has been so great learning more about your book and about you. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with St. Clair and with Carrie. Carrie, what are you reading? I have been listening to a lot of audiobooks, which is no joke. Yeah, no (laughs) joke. Um, Which is kind of funny because I'm still really, I don't feel like I'm going that many places. I, I don't feel like I'm in my car that much, but I don't know. Maybe I am. This book is called The Book of Eels Our Enduring Fascination with the Most Mysterious Creature in the Natural World. And it's by Patrick Svensson. It was translated by Agnes Broom and it was narrated by Michael Wind. And I must have seen this on your Goodreads. Well, I was going to say, you're really trying to show me up here because <laughs> because when we did our wrap up for 2020 and we talked about what our book goals were, this was one of the books oh, I mentioned and sorry. I have not read it yet, but that's okay. You go ahead. I want to hear all about it. <laughs> sorry. Well, maybe that's why it was so familiar. So it's it's one of these creative nonfiction books. So he's telling the story about himself and his father. And how when he was a child, he and his dad would go fish for eels. It tells that story. But then he's also telling all of these super interesting facts about eels. And they're super weird, mysterious creatures. Like researchers still know very little about eels because they know the general area of where they reproduce. But they have never caught any eels that are actually breeding or having just finished breeding or anything like that. Sometimes I think there's so much technology. Is there anything we don't know? And then I listen or read one of these books and I'm like, we're complete idiots. We don't know anything. So learning about eels and how little we actually know about 
their reproduction. They reproduce in the Sargasso Sea, which if anybody is is a Jane Eyre fan, there's a book that tells the story of Rochester's wife, and it's called Wide Sargasso Sea. Yes, I've read Um, that one. Well, anyway, that's where eels reproduce. And then they travel thousands and thousands of miles from the Sargasso Sea all the way across the Atlantic, and they end up anywhere way, way up north, like in Norway, all the way down into the Mediterranean. Okay, can and I interrupt you right here and yeah, ask a sure. question? Yeah. Where uh, is the Sargosso Sea? It's like in the, the Caribbean. Okay, so they mm-hmm. swim across the Atlantic in yes. salt water and then go over to Europe. And the author, is he Norwegian or Swedish or something like that? Yes. Something like that. Something like that? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. The Sargasso Sea is a region of the Atlantic. You didn't know that. you were going to have to. I didn't like, know I was going to Yeah, and- I know. I'm like, geez, Louise. So it is between North America and South America, the Sargasso Sea. So, yes. Yeah, so in the Caribbean area. Okay, because when I read the book, Wild Saragosso Sea, that's the impression I got that it was in the Caribbean somewhere. But then I had a hard time picturing all these eels swimming across the Atlantic. And so I'm like, maybe it's not where I think it is. Yeah, no, it is. It's totally where you think it is. They reproduce in salt water, but a lot of the places they go, they can go into fresh water. So they can spend like 30 or 40 years of their lives in freshwater places, researchers don't understand what it is that, you know, it's almost like a, or a switch that flips. And then they are like, I must go back to the Sargasso Sea. And then they swim all the way back and reproduce. So it's super fascinating. And like I said, he's also telling the story of him and his father. And so there's a lot of complexity because one of the other things he talks about, death and what death really is and what it looks like. And so he talks about how he and his dad at one point caught an eel and they put it in a bucket and stuck it in their garage. And when his dad got home from work, he was going to, you know, fillet it because, you know, in Scandinavia, they eat eels and and not just Scandinavia, a lot of other places in Spain. So the author went to get the eel and the eel was no longer in the bucket. And he checked, there was no way for this eel to get out of the garage, right? And so he hunts all over the garage. He's like, well, I guess it must have escaped, but I don't know where it escaped to. So his dad gets home from work and he says, the eel is not in there. And and so they go and they find the eel and it has gotten out of the bucket and it has gotten into a corner under like a bunch of junk that they had in their garage. And it's been there for hours and hours and hours, right? So his father says, well, just throw it in the bucket and I'll deal with it later. And he throws it in the bucket and it was not dead. And so again, this whole mystery of how does this eel survive for all of these hours? And then it almost like it came back to life. It's a book that if you are a complete nerd, like obviously I am because I'm talking this much about eels. It's a great (laughs) book for a person like that. But it's also a really endearing story about a father and a son. Mm. So even if you're a person who doesn't really have an interest in eels, it's this beautiful story about a father and a son and that relationship and how it changes. So it was really lovely. I think I gave it four stars, but I will shut up now about eels and ask St. Clair, have you been reading anything? Yeah. So I read on my way back from the Caribbean, I read Litany for the Long Moment by Mm -hmm. Mary Kim Arnold, who is actually my former creative writing professor from Brown. So she sort of sets it up as a response to a questionnaire. And basically backstory, she was adopted from Korea when she was a kid. She was adopted by an American mother and brought over here. And so the book explores questions of home, questions of identity, and questions of language. One part that was really interesting was when she wrote about physical pain that we feel sometimes when we're trying to speak a language, but it doesn't come out right, you know, Mm -hmm. like a foreign language. And she, I think, you know, does a lot of reimagining of what her life would have been like if she had stayed in Korea, 
you know, and trying to understand why it is that she was adopted, why it is that her parents gave her up for adoption, like what what the situation was around that and all of those unanswered questions. And I found it really fascinating because I'm also really interested in the question of home and language. And, you know, with my little siblings too, their first language is French because they live in France and mine is English. And even though I do speak French because I, I learned it in school, but I am not fluent. And so I really resonated, for example, with the part where she talks about the pain of not being able to completely say what you want to say in another language. You know, there's sort of that barrier there. And so the sort of disconnect between, I guess, biological family and assumed identity. And it was cool because I had taken a class with her before. I got to learn all of this new stuff about her. So I think it's interesting, too, when you have seen someone as a teacher figure, right? And then when you read something or, you know, later on, develop a, like a deeper relationship with somebody and find out more about them. So Yeah, like sort of getting to know her on a more personal right. level and in a right. vulnerable way, too. It, it's a really interesting question, I think, the, the question of language and the, and the question of identity and especially like for me having family in different places and also as someone who likes to travel I think that is sort of a question can language be a barrier how does it act as a barrier and how do we overcome that if we do want these deep relationships with people whose first language is in English well Amy what have you been getting into over there this goes back to you talking about a book that was on my 2021 goal list When we did that episode, one of the goals I set for myself for 2021 was to read more short story collections. And I've been pretty abysmal, as you can (laughs) see, because I had not read the eel book yet. Um, I've been been pretty abysmal at achieving any of my other goals, but this week's book is a step in the right direction for me. So I read a short story collection by Crystal Wilkinson called Water Street. And Crystal Wilkinson is well known here in Kentucky. She is part of a group, a writing collective called the Afrolachian Poets which is made up of Black authors with Appalachian roots. They're poets and fiction writers in there. And it is a misconception that there aren't Black people in Appalachia. And this writing group's goal is to bring to life the experience of Black people in that region. And she's published two short story collections, a novel, and now a book of poetry that just came out, I think, like four or five days ago called Perfectly Black. And she's currently the Poet Laureate of the state of Kentucky. And she's been the recipient or nominee for numerous awards, including the O. Henry Prize, the Orange Prize for Fiction, and the Zora Neale Hurston James Wright Legacy Award in Fiction. And her new book of poetry is getting lots of really great reviews. But the book that I read, Water Street, it was originally published in 2002. So it is not a new book, but it's a collection of short stories that is set in a small town in Kentucky called Stanford. And all of the characters live on the same street, on Water Street. And each story focuses on one person who lives on that street. And most of them relate in some way, even if it's kind of tenuous. So for instance, one story was about a woman named Yolanda, and Yolanda is married to Junior. In another story, there's a man named Mouse, and Mouse is Junior's best friend. And so they're connected, but sometimes loosely. So when I was younger, I used to like taking walks at night around the park in my little town. And what I liked about it was looking into the lighted up homes of the houses I passed. And I wasn't trying to be a stalker, but something about the lamplight against the dark gave the interior of the house a magical glow. And it seemed like every house was so warm and cozy on the inside. But of course, I don't know everything that goes on in that home. And things aren't warm and cozy all the time. But this book felt a little like that to me. You see the inner lives of the residents and how their connection as children connects them as adults. So you see courtships, marriages, divorces, births, aging parents, all the building blocks of life, really. And it's it's intergenerational. There's some really great writing in here, wonderful imagery in this book. Here's one that I especially like. So there's a chapter that is about a character named Reverend Townsend, and he's the minister of the local church. And Reverend Townsend is not sure how to interact with women more than just superficially. His mother died when he was just very, very young, and his father and older brother were his role models, though they weren't particularly good ones. So here's the passage from that chapter. From his father, he learned that women are fragile things that die like berries on the vine when you love them most. From Edward, 
he learned that women had a place in the world, a tiny place, like a pocket where you kept them held hostage until you needed them for something useful. I really enjoyed this collection. It was fairly short, but I love the way that the stories were all loosely connected. And I find that I'm drawn to those kinds of story collections the most because they have a unifying theme that make them seem closer to a novel, I guess. And Wilkinson has another story collection called Blackberries, Blackberries. And in that collection, all the stories revolve around women and young girls. And it's supposed to have sort of a Southern folktale style to it. And so I have that one on my TBR list. I can't promise I'm going to read it this year, but maybe... (laughs) (laughs) next who knows so there you go very good well we are going to take a short break and when we come back st Clair is going to answer her three about me we are back with st Clair, and are you ready for question number one Yes, I am. (laughs) All right. Number one, you studied French and Francophone studies at Brown University. What drew you to this field of study and what job goal did you envision for yourself? Yeah, my dad is from a little island in the Caribbean called St. Barts, which is a French territory. And all of my family on my dad's side, some of them speak English, but most of them, at least most of the, the people my age, just speak French. And so I wanted partly to feel closer to my dad's side of the family. And I also was really interested in sort of the Francophone aspect. So the French speaking world in Africa, in the Caribbean, like St. Bart's, you know, Haiti, places like that. And I, you know, again, being interested in social justice, I really liked that some of the classes in my program focused on the colonization and then the aftermath of colonization in the Francophone world. Let's see, in terms of jobs, I think by the time I declared French and Francophone studies as my major, I was already sort of into the arts. And so I knew that I wanted to do something more artsy and possibly incorporating French and Francophone studies and the things that I'd learned. And, you know, it definitely opens up more doors for me to create art in more parts of the world, like, you know, the the Francophone world. When you talk to your dad, do you talk to him in French ever? Uh, sometimes my dad, he, he grew up speaking English and French. So his generation grew up speaking both in the Caribbean, but it's more so my generation that pretty much just grew up speaking French. And my, (laughs) my siblings in France, obviously just speak French. And I do worry about losing what I've learned, but I realized, you know, cause again, recently I, I, I went to visit my family in the Caribbean and I realized, oh, okay, my French I think is pretty good, but, but I think that there will always be sort of like a split second lag, you know, where you have to translate something in your head or you can't necessarily joke around in the same way or you want to say something and it doesn't come out right. But I I just have to be grateful that, that there is some communication there. That's curious to me that your father's generation, they spoke both English and French. And now people your age in the French Caribbean are mainly just speaking French. I wonder why that is. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that St. Bart's in particular, the island where my dad is from, like linguists have gone there to try to understand the history of language in that island because it's not really clear how English became a language there, Mm -hmm. considering the countries that had colonized the island. But I think that for my generation, I, I do think a lot of, you know, my cousins from there, for example, are because you have to leave the island to go to high school. So are going to high school and then going to college in French speaking places, I think just because it's easier because they're French citizens. So, you know, European citizens. And I mean, the English they speak there, I guess, is it's sort of like a Caribbean mm-hmm. dialect, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes that version of English isn't as respected, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So hmm. a good question. That's interesting that they have to leave the island to go to high school. So like they go like a boarding school, they go to high school. Is that what you mean? Or like every day they would like take a ferry to to a neighbor island or something? Uh, Yeah. A lot of my cousins uh, went to boarding school in Europe or Canada. And then when my dad was in high school, he went to, yeah, I think cooking school for high school. And he went to a neighboring island called Guadeloupe and he just did a homestay over there. So he was... Yeah, so he was staying with the family over there. But a lot of my cousins now do go to or went to boarding school when they were in high school. 
Okay, so question number two, you, you've you lived in Washington, D.C. most of your life, and there are, of course, tons of wonderful places to see there, and most visitors, though, come for the Smithsonian Museums or the monuments, which are wonderful, but as a local, what is a non-touristy thing that you recommend visitors see if they come that may not be in a guidebook? I would say, and I know this is sort of a cop-out, it's not exactly one place, but I would say walk around the residential areas, walk around the neighborhoods, and there's a lot of gentrification happening in D.C. for the past couple of decades. But there are some places in D.C. that are still predominantly Black and Latinx. You know, D.C. used to be called Chocolate City <laughs> when it was majority oh. Black. Huh. And so in certain parts of Southeast, for example, because we have four quadrants. So in Southeast, there are still a lot of African-American-owned businesses, restaurants, communities. And so I think supporting those places without gentrifying (laughs) is nice and something that we don't necessarily see. It really is sort of a completely different world in some places in Southeast compared to, you know, downtown where you see all of the fancy Mm -hmm. Congress people in suits. Right. So I had no idea that it used to be called Chocolate Town. I had never heard that term. But are there specific neighborhoods that you would recommend that have a lot of those Black-owned businesses that you're talking about? Yeah. So I would say... Anacostia. And and also, I feel like some people would laugh at me because there's sort of a stereotype about these places being dangerous. But I think that those stereotypes are, are oftentimes like rooted in racism. But like Anacostia, Congress Heights, where my father used to live. Okay. Those are a couple neighborhoods. And even in Louisville, you know, we there were a lot of uh, protests and demonstrations last summer, specifically because of the Breonna Taylor case. And people in the suburbs were scared to go downtown, but really all of those protests were happening in one little block of the whole downtown. And it didn't really make any sense for people to be scared to go down there, but they were, you know, I think sometimes it's the fear of the unknown and I'm sure that there are some racial elements to it as well. But I think those are some good recommendations for Washington, DC. So Carrie, number three. Number three. All right. You produced, you have mentioned that award-winning film called Documented about the stories of DACA recipients and what life is like as an immigrant to the U.S. during the Trump presidency. So what was one of the most memorable stories you heard when making that film? I think every story was memorable in its own way. A good friend of mine, actually, from who I had known since middle school, who shared with me his story once I started getting interested in immigration once we were in college. And he shared with me the story of leaving Argentina when he was a kid, him and his little sister with their parents and not knowing when he was ever going to come back. And his parents said, okay, you know, we're, we're going to the United States on a trip. And he didn't know that it was forever. And so over time, he sort of realized as the months went on, oh, okay, we're actually we're actually staying here, you know, and he was maybe six years old at the time. And so just going through the motions of adjusting to this new life and then guiding his parents through it too, being the only one in his family who, who speaks English because his little sister is nonverbal. Mm-hmm. And so really having to grow up at a young age. He talked about, for example, when his parents couldn't afford the rent, he as a kid had to ask his mom's boss for advance payment and things like that. Oh, so. Wow. Yeah. And and it's crazy because I had known him since high school and, you know, he had always hidden that he was undocumented until, until I think I talked to him until I asked him. What has to be going on in your life and in your country for you to leave everyone you've ever known, every security you've ever had to go to a different country? I mean, that's the thing I think about. The other thing that's interesting about what you just said is sometimes just asking somebody about their story, something that they would just don't normally talk about, but just making a connection with somebody and asking them can be really fruitful in all kinds of ways. That's interesting that he had never talked about that until you just asked him. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people do want to share their stories, whether it's immigration related, hair related or anything. And I, and I think that in our society, sometimes it's sort of taboo to get into these topics, but I think opening up a space for that is is really important. And I love hearing stories too. Mm -hmm. Well, that was the perfect segue to tie it all together. Beautifully done. St. Clair, thank you so much for being a guest with us this week. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) 
You can find St. Clair on social media at her Instagram at St. Clair Dietrich Jules or at her website, www.mybeautifulblackhair.com. Did you know you can find a list of all the books, podcasts, movies, and TV shows we talk about on our show? You don't need to have a pencil and paper sitting right next to you to write down all the titles you hear us mention. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. We have a new updated website that has some great new features, including listener book recommendations and pictures of our guest pets. So come by and take a look. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.